Uh, hi, today I have Eli, Eli Dorado, uh, who is a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at the Utah State University. He got his PhD from George Mason, and Eli's goal is to have uh, GDP per capita to be $250,000 by, by the time it's 2050. My first question to you is, um, did we actually have a great stagnation? And if so, why? So, yeah, I mean, it definitely shows up in the statistics, uh, you know, uh, from sort of 1920 to 1970, uh, total factor productivity, which is the, the key metric, was growing at about 2% per year. And since then, it's grown by less than 1%. And, and actually, in the last uh, 15 years or so, it's been growing by less than half a percent. So it's, it is a deepening stagnation at this point. Um, and sort of like why why it happened like that's the that's the uh, multi million dollar question right uh, multi trillion dollar question maybe um, the you know so I think there's a couple different schools of thought and so one of them is the Robert Gordon school of thought that you know we kind of picked all the low hanging fruit of the technology tree um, there's only so much um, we could squeeze out of you know inventing the internal combustion engine and we kind of we kind of did that. And we went through, got all those gains, and now there's nothing else to, to do besides, you know, besides information technology, which is, which is only one thing. But you know, sort of in the in the early 20th century, we had a bunch of different things hitting all at once. We had uh, indoor plumbing, or you know, sanitation technology. We had uh, pharmaceuticals. We had in internal combustion engine. We had um, a couple other things that he cites. And he's like, we had all these things hitting at once. And that's like why we were able to have fast growth. And then, and then since the 1970s, all we've had is information technology. And so that's, that's one way of looking at it. You know, to my mind, that's not, that's not really correct. Um, we, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's correct as far as it goes, but it doesn't explain like the, the real question is like, why aren't we getting more areas of technology? Is it something fundamental about technology itself that, that you know, the technology tree, that there's no new inventions to be had? Or is it something instead that we're raising barriers to, um, to innovation? And I think, it's, I think it's the latter. It's that there are a whole host of, uh, of, of barriers to innovation, you know, regulatory and cultural that, um, that have, have slowed us down. I can't prove it. You know, I, there, there's there's no way to to sort of resolve that except by sort of you know sort of accumulation of, of anecdotes and, and stories. But um, uh, but that you know that's my view is it's it's something that we're doing to ourselves uh, by prioritizing other things besides growth. Do you think economists should focus more on on some sort on on a collection of 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 anecdotes and stories when it comes to issues like these? versus the more empirical approach that's taken over the field? Uh, you, you need, maybe you need both. I think that the, the number one thing is to focus on sort of deep understanding of what's actually going on um, and, 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 and having, you know, I think, I think empirics always needs to com be combined with sort of like some theoretical structure. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, at least in your, at least in your mind, um, then you know you're just doing sort of blind, uh, you know, sort of blind empirics have, have very little explanatory power, right? You, mm -hmm. you actually do need at least some implicit theoretical structure behind it, and so understanding um, is 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 the key goal, not not just uh, you know p values. But mm -hmm. but I, I I have high respect for empirical work. Um, it, it's just, but I, I do think you need to. Um, combine it with with sort sort of a deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fair. Uh, you work at a think tank. I, do think tanks actually have an impact? Because for somebody outside them, it would seem okay. You guys, you you tweet a lot. You put a lot of papers. You put a lot of PDFs online. But outside that, uh, does it actually change policymakers' minds? Um. You know, different uh, different organizations have different impacts, right? So some of them are not very impactful, and some of them are. And uh, you know, I, I think um, 
you know, I think sometimes the audience is directly the policymaker, but uh, but a lot of times it's it's also the culture, right? And so trying to influence um, sort of you know the media and 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 so on. So so there's so it's a it's a it's a it's more than just trying to sort of directly target a policymaker, right? Then that would make you more of a, a lobbyist in some ways, mm, yeah. right? Uh, but 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 um, but sort of. I, I do think that there are, um, so an example would be somebody like, um, like my former colleague, Scott Sumner, uh, who basically convinced the world that we should be doing nominal GDP targeting, you know, mm -hmm. still, or at least convinced like all the economists in the world, mm -hmm. uh, that that's like, you know, probably the, the better, uh, goal for monetary policy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a real effect and it, and it has influenced, uh, it has influenced sort of the, the monetary policy response, even though, um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's too many countries that have an explicit nominal GDP target as, as he might like, but, uh, but I think it's definitely influenced their behavior. And there was, a, there was a rumor going on a few years ago that the UK might do it, but they didn't. But do you, th uh, do you think that a nominal GDP futures market would actually work in the sense that it, it would deliver what it's promised, 4% nominal GDP growth, or would it die out due to lack of liquidity or whatever the, the other concerns? I, I mean, I, I, you know, you have um, a lot of financial markets where people are betting lots of money on lots of different things, essentially. So I don't see why hedge funds and the other, other folks like that wouldn't participate in a GDP market. And, you know, if it were uh, designed, you know, like a normal financial market where they could have unlimited, take unlimited positions and, uh, where the cost of trading was very low and so on. Like if you, if you had that kind of market, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't get like hedge fund activity in it and, um, and potentially be very liquid. Yeah, that's a fair point. Those are my views too. Uh, you run an angelist syndicate. Do you think accredited investor laws should be more or less strict? Yeah, so I'm I'm starting a syndicate. I haven't actually uh, done okay. any investments yet, but I'm but I'm but I'm, I'm uh, dabbling in that. Um, yeah, I think I do think it's uh, unfair that um, that a lot of people cannot uh, invest in in you know private private companies. Um, so I, I I would definitely prefer to have um, some relaxed criteria for for that. I think it's I think it's I think it's un unfortunate. Yeah, for, um, for a lot of people. The counter argument is that most people are actually pretty bad with their money. You, know, you see all the news stories with people putting millions of dollars in Dogecoin or uh, taking, putting their, their, their life savings in some, the polite word is altcoin. And then you wonder <laughs> if, if, there was a, if, if, if there was a free market in private investments, you'd see so many scammers coming for, coming for, in, for, coming for innocent people. What's your counter argument to that? Yeah, and I, I would actually say it's worse than what you say in some ways because there are people who invest in in some of these coins and they make a lot of money and then they think that they're a genius investor. Yeah, <laughs> right. As opposed to oh, I just got lucky, right? Mm -hmm. um, no, so I think that it is definitely true that uh, you know people can lose money in investing, right? And and um, and so the you could have a couple of approaches is one is you could just like tell people, yeah, you might lose your money. Right. Like, and, and make that the norm is like, you really might lose your money if you invest and you got to be careful. And then the other is to try to use regulation to make sure that nobody, you know, loses their money. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that's like, sort of like, that's a very, it's a very challenging uh, it's a very challenging task and you know, the securities regulators are never going to succeed at that. There's always going to be, you know, not, I mean, there's always businesses that fail, but there's always going to be at some margins, there's going to be frauds. So there's going to be, um, you know, uh, companies that are, you know, uh, shading the truth uh, when, when they're raising money. And, you know, that's just, that's just part of the game. And, and we should just tell people to be, uh, to be ultra cautious, but then, um, and we should prosecute frauds, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whether whether it's in public markets or in private markets. Mm -hmm. The risk averse. On one hand, you see the American public becoming a lot 
less risk averse they're putting their money into all sorts of wild things on the other hand the american private sector is becoming uh, sorry, the, the american uh, re, re, regulatory st- structure is is a lot more risk averse and i think if you if the median voter theorem held a lot of these things wouldn't be there if you actually explain to people how the the sec rules and various other regulations impact them uh, i i don't think the american public would um, would would go on with those do you agree with that so i think the, the median voter theorem like basically holds over like a long long enough period of time not mm-hmm. not in, in any particular uh, at any particular moment but over a long period of time but and it's been the problem for a long, it, long time yeah. right Yeah yeah the the problem is that uh so Brian Kaplan of course had a book on, on this right mm-hmm. like uh it's it's not just uh the median voter and what is in their rational self interest it's it's the median voter and what is in their irrationally held belief right mm-hmm. so it's it's if if the um if the median voter has irrational views then guess what that's the that's the, the policy outcome you're going to have mm-hmm. right so i think the sort of the the current uh structure it's not something that the median voter is like this is wrong we should get rid of it it's it's um it is something the median voter is like yeah i basically i don't want to change this that much mm-hmm. right like so i i don't see a big agitating agitation from uh the median voter to change securities laws Mm-hmm. Uh you worked in Boom before uh, in the in a public policy role uh, a common criticism of pu- people who work in public policy is that they're glorified lobbyists is is this true uh well you know i think uh i i think i did uh, a lot of good stuff for boom uh uh-huh. i don't you know i most of it uh was not lobbying um uh but i mean but yeah i mean i was a i was sort of an advocate for the the business and the uh and and what we were trying to do and just you know so sort of my my job was to just try to make as much of that happen remove the barriers the policy barriers the risks mm-hmm. and um and and sort of convince people uh to let us do it and uh, you know we got pretty far with it do deep tech firms over or under invest in in public policy roles Um that's a great question. So I I think uh with Boom we we had a good investment and it was and it paid off. Um other companies um I I do so I think in general um a lot of companies are are underinvesting in in their regulatory uh issues and I think investors also um they overrate regulatory risk. is another thing right so so i so my experience you know i, I think it it'd be different in a different industry such as like 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 if you're trying to build a nuclear power plant you know good luck i mean it's just it's going to be super hard but um but it, you know in a in a sort of an emerging emerging technology issue um i do think you can you can change the the policy discussion and the, you can change uh, you know the the regulatory environment and it's worth uh trying to do that if you are in a highly regulated industry um or and and it's and it's worth you know not being too afraid of that if you're an investor mm-hmm. right like like these you know if 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 especially if the the company is doing something unique and sexy and and you know where you can sort of make the argument like this isn't this isn't an important novel thing and we need to be able to allow it like there are paths forward for that uh even even if the sector as a whole is highly regulated mm-hmm. and people should be trying to to exploit that for sure if that's the case and why do so few large cryptocurrencies that is the more centralized ones like 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 ethereum uh, have uh, public policy people because if you look at it the one thing that that could change many um many coin uh, many coins in the cryptocurrency world is if the sec stop considering them securities or or uh, interpreted them in in a in a in a different way that would that that would allow them to be sold to the public and despite this uh, i i i think that very few uh, cryptocurrencies hire i mean at least the ones that are ent- that are centralized to an extent uh, hire people who work in public policy 
So, you know, I think uh, if you, I think the, actually the cryptocurrency space is one where there has been had very successful engagement mm -hmm. with regulators so far, right? Mm -hmm. So I've, if you, what are the actual barriers to cryptocurrency adoption? It's, uh, you know, regulatory is not high on the list, right? Like I think, um, you know, basically, uh, I, I, so I, I have a, you know, a bunch of friends of mine that, that work for Coin Center, mm -hmm. um, and they have been really successful in uh, preventing any regulations that sort of in a discriminatory way go after, you know, target cryptocurrencies, right? Mm -hmm. And they've, uh, you, you know, we've seen um, the sort of the, the licensing laws actually get better, not worse. Um, and, and, and so I think, I think things are moving really in the right direction for cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it has been, uh, I think the industry has supported, you know, or, or, or coin center and then also the individual companies, you know, so I don't think it's like the coins that are going to be doing the, the, the policy outreach. I think it's going to be companies like Coinbase mm -hmm. and, and maybe the exchanges, other exchanges, um, that would be the, the natural, uh, sort of the natural people to, to do that because they're the ones that are actually having to get the money transmission licenses and so on, right? Mm -hmm. it, like if you, there's nothing stopping you from, from launching a new blockchain today, right. like you could, you could, you could absolutely do that. And, um, and uh, my former colleague, Hester Peirce, who's now on the SEC has called for there to be a, a sort of, um, you know, a, a three-year period, you know, incubation period where, you know, you could, you could, you know, if you are, um, if you are, you know, launching a, a coin that, you know, for, for whatever reason is, is, um, you know, initially centralized, but, but aiming to be decentralized, you would have like a three year period to decentralize before you'd be considered a security. Uh, so, so, you know, that, that's the kind of discussion that's going on now. I think it's, I think it's actually pretty promising. Should the, should, I mean, the term security was the entire securities licensing system we have was developed in the 30s after uh, the, the 1929 stock market crash. Should we change that for a more modern, um, for a more modern world where the line between security and not security is not so clear? Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a legal expert or a securities expert, but, um, but I haven't seen a good reason why it needs to change. Right, the mm -hmm. the idea of a security, right, that that um, yeah, like a financial instrument where you're relying on somebody else to to execute on, on you know, that where its value is is dependent on on somebody else's execution ability, like that, to me is a is a fine concept, and um, I I haven't seen a good reason for it to change. I do think you know you we want to we want to look at the specific cases where. The existing rules are are harming innovation to find some way to to fix it, but I I haven't heard, I I personally haven't heard a convincing argument for like why we need like such deep thoroughgoing reform to to those laws. Uh, let's say tomorrow President Biden called you and said, uh, "Here you go, I, you're my you're my regulation boss now. Uh, change anything you you want," and promised you a majority in both houses of Congress. How would you rewrite the structure? You know, I think I would I would go after relatively narrow um, reforms in a bunch of really unsexy issues. So mm -hmm. things like permitting, right? So okay. so I've done some work on uh, a law called NEPA that um, basically requires you to do you know sort of years of environmental review before a federal agency can give you a permit for something. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so getting you know getting rid of that or, or deeply reforming it uh, would be one of them. Uh, I think things like uh, the way that the government does procurement. So, um, you know, you have NASA spending twenty billion dollars on a uh, on a rocket that we nobody wants, but Congress wants it because they uh, because it provides jobs in a bunch of states. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that <laughs> that's a huge problem. Uh, same thing on the defense side. The the sort of you know the the procurement of these big platforms like the F thirty five and the Ford class carrier, um, yeah, again very popular because they provide like jobs in every district, um, but not actually suitable for the future of warfare and not as actually technologically advanced as we would want, right? You what you actually want is more, um, 
you know, autonomous, uh, attributable, you know, you can lose them in cheap, cheap and you can lose them, um, sort of, um, weapon systems and so on. So fixing permitting and procurement, uh, I'd get rid, you know, try to preempt uh, a bunch of, uh, of housing, uh, regulations. So, mm -hmm. you know, things that prevent you from building more densely multifamily, uh, homes everywhere in the country, like as a, almost as a matter of civil rights, right? Like, like yeah. we, we don't, we don't want people like excluding, uh, people, uh, the impact that that has had on education has been terrible. Like where people are segregated by zip code, uh, you know, uh, certain zip codes are desirable because, uh, the schools that they align with and so on. Um, so, so yeah, it, so it would be a bunch of like, unsexy regulatory topics um, that I think would un unlock a lot more building, a lot more ability to build in the physical world. Uh, another one is, is things like, um, like pre-market approval versus, mm -hmm. you know, so, so you can think about two different ways to do safety regulation. Right? One is you verify upfront that the product is safe and, and you make the company go through an expensive uh, process that, that proves that. Mm -hmm. And that's what we use for airplanes. Uh, and that's also what we use for pharmaceuticals, right? Mm -hmm. We have these lengthy, lengthy, you know, pre-market certification or approval processes. Uh, and then the other way you can do it is you can say, you can release your product. It's got to follow these regulations. And if we determine that there's a safety issue, we're going to continue to monitor the market afterwards. And if we determine that there's a safety issue, we're going to make you do a recall. Right, we're going to make you recall the 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 car. Let's say, right? That's, that's how cars are regulated. Um, you know, that to me is a, is a better way a lot of times of of doing uh, safety regulation is is kind of you know allow uh, a, a sort of default to allowing the product. You know, provided that they that they say that they meet certain regulations, and then if if you just if you observe a problem, just make them withdraw it from the market until um until there's a there's a fix so so that would be an, that would be another area i'd try to try to um adjust uh the safety regulations uh do you think more countries should adopt the european standard the ce standard where you self certify and later and after you sell it on the market regularly and if something goes wrong uh regulators go after you or should we have a more um constrained way where you go to approval first yeah so the, yeah exactly i think that the europe that european model which i've heard of before uh but uh haven't haven't deeply studied it but that that's that's the basic idea is is you could uh go through that and if there's a problem you know we'll you know we'll, we'll work it out when when it's shown that there's a problem mm -hmm. uh what is the actual does the fda actually cause millions of deaths every year due to delayed approval of drugs? Yeah, I don't know about millions, but it's certainly, I mean, like cumulatively, it's, yes, cumulatively. it's millions because we'd be, because we, because, and it might even be cumulatively millions per year, right? Because of the, of progress yeah, building people, upon progress, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's, you can think of it, there's type one and type two errors, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, FDA is so concerned about making type one errors that they, um, but they're in, in the process, they're making a lot of type two errors by delaying safe and effective drugs from reaching the market. So, um, so yeah, so there, there's definitely a, uh, a death toll from that as well. And, you know, uh, my uh, co-author uh, Alex Tabarak calls it the invisible graveyard. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, we, we can't we don't know how many people uh, died, have died because of that. But um, I mean, the other thing is uh, drug approval is actually, you know, so you see in, in computers, things get better every year. Right. There's Moore's mm -hmm. law. So right. uh, there's a, a, a law. and there's E-Room's law in medicine. Right. It's, uh, like the cost of approving a drug uh, doubles every however many years. Uh, so, so we're actually getting less efficient. At, at approving drugs uh, over time, and that's uh, that's you know really damaging. Mm -hmm. Should more countries make Bitcoin legal tender? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. 
uh, I mean, Bitcoin is not good money, right? It's not good for, it's, it's not good as money. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so uh, when I think about money, I think of, of three things, right? It's like unit of account, medium of exchange, store of value. Well, uh, Bitcoin is not a great uh, medium of exchange. Like uh, it's costly to, to transfer. And even if you're talking about like level two, it's like, it's like the user experience is not good. It's costly to, you know, uh, set up your account and maintain operational security and all of those stuff. So it's, it's not good yet as, as a, as a medium of exchange, it's terrible as a unit of account. Like you don't want to get negotiate a salary contract or a mortgage in, in Bitcoin and then find out that you are owed or owe, you know, two to three times more or less than you thought, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because of the volatility, right? And it's not a good store of value because it's, it's highly volatile, right? You could, you could, you know, you could maintain your funds with it, or you could lose half your funds with it. So it's it's um, it's it's none of those things. So it's 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 not really, um, but you know, today, uh, you know, given current usability and stuff like that, it's not good money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, and, and I would say like El Salvador, not only are they making it legal tender, they're making it um, more than that. They're saying it's you, everybody has to accept it mm-hmm. as, as payment, which is, which is not what legal tender is. Legal tender mm-hmm. is you have to uh, accept it for certain kinds of debt. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so I, I, you know, it, it would be a mistake, I think for, for most countries too. Um to follow in El Salvador's footsteps. Why are Ethereum gas fees so high? For for somebody like me who's new to, to the space, uh, paying $20, $30 to transfer $10 to somebody seems so ridiculous. Why does this happen? Well, it's because uh, it's, it's two things in, in concert, right? One is demand for transactions is, is, is you know high relative to the capacity of the network. And then also scaling the capacity of the network is really hard, right? So, so that is, to me, like that's, that's where, where we're at at this point is we've got to figure out how to scale these things so that they're usable. Um, there's no way that uh, Ethereum is going to take off, uh, it, you know, in sort of mainstream usage or, or, or even as a um, global, you know, uh, financial rails, which I, is what I think we're headed towards. You know, unless the cost of these transfers goes way, way down. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, I think the the Ethereum project. What I find attractive about it is that they are actually very serious about doing the work to scale the base layer, um, and with with you know, EIP one five five nine coming. Uh, you know, maybe perhaps in a, in a month or so, uh, with the proof of stake transition coming. You know, maybe at the end of the year or early next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, sharding, with uh, sort of state expiry, with uh, sort of these zero knowledge proofs uh, being integrated at at the mm-hmm. protocol le- level, like all of that is just geared towards scaling. And if they can scale it, if they can actually get it to the point where uh, it can handle a hundred thousand transactions per second, you know that's that's going to be like alien technology. And it's you know, it's going to be it's going to be a big deal, mm-hmm. um, and 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 then it might be really interesting financial rails on which people can can transfer you know not just money but but securities right uh, or t- uh, tokens that represent just about anything, um, and so it, you know to me like it's it's at scaling the base layer that that really matters, and also not trying to be like money that people are going to buy coffee with right so. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it's, it, Ethereum still has the problem of it's highly volatile, and um, so people are probably not going to be buying coffee with with ETH anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Does the volatility of a currency reduce with with scale? But because that is that has that that hasn't happened that much with Bitcoin, right? It it went up hundred percent or last year, and last three months is down forty percent. And but do you think this this has happened to other crypto? currencies too or will there be um, a larger supply of buyers and sellers to uh, to handle the volatility so so uh, what was the what was the question 
uh, will the volatility of cryptocurrencies increase as as a number of people using it increases? Because we haven't seen much of that with Bitcoin. Yeah, I I I mean, I think that if you actually got it to the point where there was uh, mainstream usage, I do think the volatility would go down, right? Like I think that I think that people they, a big a big part of the problem is that people aren't anchored on what the value should be, mm-hmm. right? Of of the of the token. And so, you know, I think as people gain experience with it, there would be uh, more of that anchoring. And in fact, I mean, like Bitcoin, like part of the and part of the attraction of Bitcoin is that you don't have uh, anchored expectations about what it should be worth. Mm-hmm. And like you can you can try to meme your way to the moon, mm-hmm. right? Like that is yeah. that's what people are trying to do is they're trying to rely on the fact that nobody knows what this should be worth mm-hmm. to try to get it, you know, convince people, well, it should be worth more. And, and, and like, that's, that's, what's driving the price is not, not any change in sort of like real world usage or fundamentals. I take it, I take it that you're not a laser eyes person then. No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 uh, I think that, you know, I think uh, cryptocurrency is super interesting and, mm-hmm. and super important. Um, but that the, all the price discussions have been a major distraction because like what we actually need to do is build the, the um, mature version of this, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and get it to the point where it can, uh, where it can serve, you know, uh, like, you know, uh, have a blockchain that can serve the entire planet and, you know, all, all 8 billion people on it and, um, and we can all transact on it. Like that to me is... And, and smart contracts and, and everything else that you might build on it. Like that, that to me, like when we get there, it's going to feel like alien technology. It's not that far away, but it's, you know, sort of the idea that people um, have made, you know, millions of dollars on this and they think that we're done and they think that they're a super smart investor because they got lucky mm-hmm. at it. Um, and they, they're overconfident about their uh, other views of the world. Like, to me, like that's actually really damaging, and mm-hmm. and I would much rather have it be, uh, you know, a bunch of open source programmers who are just working to build this cool revolutionary thing. Why have Americans become more risk averse over the last fifty years or so? If you read the book *The Great Stagnation*, Tyler Cowen makes it makes a very compelling thesis for that. Do you do you have an idea of why that happened? Uh, why we're risk averse? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I have a very good explanation for why. I mean, I think that when you have higher levels of wealth, higher base levels of wealth, you end up, you tend to end up being more risk averse, right? Like, like you have more to lose. Um, so it could be, it could be just related to that. Um, so, I mean, I think we, we've seen, we've seen uh, in general, like, uh, you know, across the world, wealthier societies have higher safety standards, for instance, right? Like, like mm-hmm. that's, that's just a, um, a, a, they're able to afford the, the cost of those safety standards more, but then also I think that they feel like they have more to lose um, from dying young. Uh, you, you, you lose not only so many years of life, but so many years of life at a higher standard of living mm-hmm. is what you lose, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh- what did what does Europe get wrong when it comes to the, uh, regulating big tech? Because you've been a, a critic of the of the GDPR, and I think you've been a critic of their other initiatives to find. I mean, it's 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 sort it's it's sort of like the EU's version of decentral of decentralized fining of these countries. Italy does one, France does one, and in the end, it just it, it's enough to make a pinch into um, Google or. Or or, 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 uh, or Amazon. So, what is wrong in their core philosophy of looking at big tech? Well, I, I think what. So, if you if you compare this to like the Robert Gordon thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Like Robert Gordon says, we had these five big inventions mm-hmm. that that uh, that led to growth. And today, the problem is that we have one, mm-hmm. right? And it's tech, right? Or big tech. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or information technology, which has yielded some big tech companies, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, to me, there's something wrong about, like, oh, we only have one, and so we're going to punish that one, mm-hmm. 
right? Like, like, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna stop them. Instead of uh -huh. saying like, well, well, the real problem is that we don't have four other sectors that are like mm -hmm. big tech. And like, what can we do to encourage four other sectors to be highly dynamic and wealth producing mm -hmm. sectors of the economy, right? To me, like that's, that's where we should be focused, not on uh, punish, you know, punishing the one sector that has been successful mm -hmm. and scapegoating them for all our other problems. Uh, that's a that's a that's a fair point. Your PhD thesis was on what constrains governments. Uh, do democracies or dictatorships do a better job at uh, at regulating technology? As in tomorrow, as in if America has a Chinese model, a Leninist party, do you think in the, in the hypothetical version of that of that America would do would be more or less lenient with technology? So. Yeah, so uh, what's interesting about democracy versus dictatorship is on a whole range of issues, they have very similar policies. Mm -hmm. So, so dictatorships are very responsive, it turns out, to public opinion in like the same way that, that democracies are. The, the big difference is that they, uh, dictatorships are more likely to spend their sort of the slack that the public gives them on things that help them stay in power, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so dictatorships are more likely to, for example, have uh, extensive public education. Why? Because they want to indoctrinate children, <laughs> right? So, so it's like yeah, it, you, right. you, you know, relative relative to like you know income, the the amount of social spending that they that they do is not that different between uh, democracies and dictatorships. But with the with the caveat that like dictatorships spend it on education more than healthcare, right? And it's because that they want that indoctrination function. And so I, I would, you know, I, for, on that model, like where dictatorships are just totally obsessed with staying in power, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like the main thing they care about. And it's like the, the, what they want is they want to stay in power and otherwise just give people what they want, give the public mm -hmm. what they want. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, do, do, but, but make sure you stay in power because it's really bad if you mm -hmm. fall out of power, right? On that model, like, yeah, they want to regulate big tech because they want to control what people are saying and, and be mm -hmm. able to surveil and monitor and so on. So I think... Uh, I, I think uh, dictatorships would absolutely um, uh, want to control uh, tech a lot, e even more than democracies do, which is, turns out is still quite a lot. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good point because that that's a very good model for what's happening in China now with, with all of the founders taking vacations for various periods of time. And then when you realize that, and the answer is that when the party starts to lose control of the flow of of information, which is which is one of the big reasons why you know um, there's a very big finance. I think it was a Financial Times report on 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 how hiring censors hurts the profitability of these uh, of these content companies. Which is, if you're TikTok, you don't want to spend X percent of your revenues, which is essentially a fixed cost, um, hiring people to censor stuff. And that, and you know, you you're completely right in that because that way, because that that would definitely hurt uh, growth and and in and in and innovation. Now, my next question to you is: uh, What advice do you have for ambitious people? You seem to know you seem to know a lot about future technologies. Where should the most ambitious people go? Um. I don't think there's one answer uh, it, for for everybody, and I, I you know I would emphasize in, in my career like there's at no point you know have I been doing what I thought I would be doing five years prior, mm -hmm. right? So it's like I, I think I've I've kind of had a little bit of a meandering career where mm -hmm. you know it's like oh I was going to be a professor and then I'm going to do this uh, you know policy, policy research and then I'm going to go in the private sector for a while and then I'm going to come back to policy research. Like I I don't think I would have predicted it. So I don't think you have to have a master plan. What I would say is, I think what's, what has worked for me is like find what is, um, you know, to you the most interesting thing in the world right now and just try to put yourself at the center of that. So for mm -hmm. so you could say for me, like the most interesting thing for a while was the GMU econ department, mm -hmm. right? And I put myself at the center of that. And even though I don't have an affiliation with them anymore, like I'm still sort of recognized as a, as a product of GMU econ and still talk to those people all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that to me really paid off. And then, you know, putting myself in supersonics for a while, right? Like that was, to me, that was the most interesting thing. And so, so do that. And then I think the other thing that I would say is, um, you know, don't worry, uh, don't worry about like 
credit or about um, you know getting credit for things or about you know compensation like directly uh, right right away. Like focus on, instead on like put yourself in that situation and then just create indiscriminate amounts of value uh, for everybody. Create positive mm-hmm. externalities mm-hmm. Um, because when you do that, like uh, it turns out people want to have you around. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, like, like you want the neighbors that create right. positive right. externalities for, 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 for you. Right. And so, um, and so just do that. And like, that's how you develop the networks and the connections that, um, that help you succeed in that, in that field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you blogged a long time ago that blogging, that uh, pub, that production of public goods is a problem. A blog, a blog somehow are close enough to public goods. Uh, is the total amount of, of, of blogging on the internet underproduced or overproduced? Uh, I think it's still underproduced. I think that, well, I think, um, I think more people would benefit from blogging, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think, I think it's definitely true. Like, you, you know, I, I talk to a lot of young people who are like, well, um, I don't know what I should, should do. And it's like, well, what are you doing to try to figure that out? And then they're like, nothing, right? Like, like there, there's, there's nothing that they're doing, but, but at least if they were writing about something, right. And putting it online where somebody could find it, right. Mm-hmm. They would be able to start having more interesting discussions and so on. So I think, um, I think it's, I think absolutely like people should be take advantage of the fact that we, you know, so we're not at the, there was this uh, amazing blogosphere that happened, you know, it was going on, you know, uh, 15 years ago, let's say, mm-hmm. right. Like it was, it was just, it was phenomenal. The amount of uh, discussion that was going on 15 to, to 10 years ago, um, it was great. And, mm-hmm. and, and to some extent that moment has passed because of social media, but, but still like the, the principle of, you know, you, you need to be thinking about things and organizing your thoughts and then putting them out there for people to uh, debate, right. Or, or to, to be exposed to, or be able to run across or discover, right. Like, mm-hmm. like the, if you don't do that, like no, no one's going to discover your, your ideas if, mm-hmm. if you don't actually publish them. So, um, so there's value in, in, in working through your thoughts. There's value in putting them out there for people to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, I would say to, to most people, like you should be, you should definitely be uh, considering blogging. You've only convinced me I'm on the right path. Thank you. Now uh, <laughs> on this, but what, what does NASA get the, get, get wrong the most? Is, is, is there one egregious mistake they do or is it a combination of multiple mistakes? NASA gets wrong? Yeah. You know, I think NASA has been mostly getting things right lately. I think the, mm-hmm. the problem with NASA is that it's beholden to Congress, right? So, so Congress funds, uh, gives their bu- gives them their budget and they tells them, tells them what to spend it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, there's a lot of, um, you know, you, we just saw with the human landing system uh, with an award that NASA made an award that went to SpaceX and, um, and, and, you know, NASA had talked about, well, maybe we would do two of these awards, one to space, you know, one, one, to, uh, two, two, two different applicants. There were really only three uh, people that were three finalists. And, you know, the, the, the thinking was that NASA would give awards to two of them mm-hmm. to, to proceed. And they ended up just giving an award to SpaceX and, and no one else. Well, A, like Congress didn't give them enough money. Congress mm-hmm. was really upset by this, right? They, they wanted a, an award, you know, for to Blue Origin as well, because, right. uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a national team. It was a bunch of different companies, so a bunch of different senators and, and districts. Um, and, and so, NASA, you know, Congress didn't give NASA enough money to make multiple awards, um, you know, uh, you know, you shouldn't be making policy on the basis of like where the jobs are anyway, right? Like you, you actually, be, yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't be, right? Like, so, so, so anyway, and this happens over and over again um, with the, the space launch system is another thing that, you know, NASA continues to spend money on because Congress says that you have to, right? And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think there was a, a, a rider even in the, the, what was originally called the Endless Frontiers Act, right? That, mm-hmm. um, that said, that you have to build a test stand for the um, space launch system to f- do a test firing once a year, whether or not we fly the rocket, 
Uh-huh. Right? Like, <laughs> complete so, waste of money. So, so it's a complete waste of money. <laughs> complete waste of money. Right? And, 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 um, and, and this is, this is, I think the, the, the problem is that members of Congress look at this as a pork fund, right? It's a, it's a fund to funnel jobs and money to their, their home, home states. Mm-hmm. And if we, uh, you know, in that environment, it's amazing that NASA can get anything done at all. But NASA has really embraced, I think the agency itself has embraced uh, commercial space mm-hmm. and the idea of, um, you know, fixed price, uh, fixed price, uh, milestone based, uh, goal driven rather than requirements driven contracts. And, and, you know, we've seen that not only with the commercial orbital transportation system, which was the original one, but we saw that with the commercial crew. We've seen that now with the uh, human landing system on the moon. There's another one for orbital space stations that uh, they're, they're doing now. And they have figured out a model that works and they want to do it on everything, which is great. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is um, exactly what we want to see. And, the, and, and the problem is Congress, right? And Congress wants to have these mm-hmm. big, uh, cost plus Boeing led, Lockheed led, Northrop Grumman led uh, systems that are government owned and and it costs many billions of dollars and creates lots of jobs and that are, you know they're slow and that's fine because it just means more labor, um, and and that's that's the dynamic right now. I think NASA is doing a, a pretty good job. Should should NASA be self funded? Should they have a like India's a space? organization ISRO has a has a commercial arm of which the the profits they reinvest in their actual space business should NASA try to uh, 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 replicate that uh, yeah maybe um I think that would be that would be really interesting um yeah I I, I don't know that, that you know so NASA has a pretty big budget it's like 20 billion dollars a year mm-hmm. or something like that you know it's small relative to a bunch of other federal agencies but but big relative to a, um, you know, a company that's that's earning revenues, right? So, mm-hmm, yeah. so I don't know how how they would get that level of funding, mm-hmm. um, but I, but you know, if if they could have half the funding they have now, and if it, if it didn't come with the silly mandates, then they would be better off, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, if you didn't if you didn't have to do this all this SLS and mm-hmm. and other. Uh, related uh, programs that are worthless, um, then they might be better off. So, mm-hmm. so, so maybe. It, I mean, it's definitely. I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea they should be self-funded, but um, you know, there'd be a lot of details to work out there. Mm-hmm. So, one idea I've been toying with is that every single independent agency should have its own uh, financial and and endowment which they in which they invest and over the next 50 or 60 years they'll probably earn enough of the interest of the money compounded that that you know is it's going to end up paying all their um revenues what do you think of that so you're a socialist or you think that the government should own uh, a big chunk of the the private no, no. economy no i mean i, well, I mean that's just it's a joke but it's it's um, <laughs> it, it is it is actually the problem you run into right is if you have you know you could have government you could have you could imagine even like sort of the federal government just saying like oh we're gonna lend, lend out you know we're gonna borrow at one percent and we're gonna invest in the s p 500 and we're gonna make seven percent mm-hmm. a year on average and we're gonna just pocket the difference and we're gonna fund everything and eventually we don't have taxes the problem with that is like the government ends up owning a lot of shares right mm-hmm. whether whether it's your thing with the agencies or, or this mm-hmm. other thing right you have the government owning a lot of shares and it's got to vote the shares right it's got mm-hmm. so shareholder meetings like there's like a u.s government vote mm-hmm. and if, if you have the government owning you know 30 40 percent of some companies uh that ends up being that sort of like political freedom questions but so, yeah so so it ends up being a it ends up being a uh in some ways a socialist economy right um uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a way to make it work, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, maybe it's like, it, it, it's like, if the limit extent of socialism is like holding the shares, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe that that's fine. But, um, but I think that that is, that is, uh, it's an issue to, to grapple with is, is how, mm-hmm. how do you, how would, how would that actually work in practice? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, so, so, so I live in Singapore, where the same approach is done, where I think, 
20 to 30 percent 20 in a good year 30 in a bad year of of uh, revenues come from just the the just the state-owned funds and i really enjoy the low taxes we have my my last question to you is um who are your intellectual heroes uh, what would you who shaped your 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 journey well i you know um uh Tyler Cowan, I think, has been very influential on me. Uh, you know, he was my PhD advisor. I read almost everything he's he wrote, like ever. Um, and, I think and, I should have put a no GMU requirement on this. Uh, well, okay. So, but but anyway, but no. I, but I think you know, aside, you know, more more seriously, I think I try not to have intellectual heroes, right? I try to, uh, I try to not. Um, uh, to evaluate the ideas independently of who, you know, where they came from, right? So, uh, so I, I, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, even if I, you know, read a book and I think, oh, this is brilliant, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the next book that author comes out, I want to be able to evaluate it on its own merits rather than just being like, oh, this is from my intellectual hero, so therefore I have to like it or something like that, right? So, so uh, you know, try to. I, I always try to keep. Um, that sort of like the identity that sort of ideological identity that i have like small right like keep it keep it very 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 small so that i i think you can be more rational if you um if you can just say yeah the, the ideas in this book are great rather than the author who wrote this is great mm-hmm. okay that's a that's a that's a unique perspective i've never heard of that because because everyone names like five people and they're like you know these five people shape i think and you should totally read them and the only person who's who said that and well uh, i mean there's there's particular books and stuff that have been influential but like yeah i don't i I think that they don't need to be we don't need to to lionize the the authors of those books what are those books um uh, sort of like a a philosophy book that um really influenced me was uh finite and infinite games by james karst Okay. And that was really, that was really in, just in terms of like how to live and how to approach the world. I think that that is, um, that was, that was really, really important. I think, uh, so like, uh, so I read zero to one at a particularly, uh, critical time in my life that where mm-hmm. I was like taking over a, a research program and I was like, well, what should we work on? And mm-hmm. sort of the idea of, of being okay with, with doing something unique. Mm-hmm. um was really valuable to me um uh oh man there, there, there's 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 got to be other ones but those are the ones that come to mind mm-hmm. right now is as um in terms of you know where, where i actually think i like changed my behavior because of them um i'd say okay. i'd say those two yeah i've read zero to one and it's, it's i think it's an, it's an equally life-changing book for anybody who who reads it yeah, it's actually a philosophy book. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, disguised as a disguised as a business book. It's, it's it's sold in the business section, but it yeah. changes minds a lot. Um, thanks a lot for coming. That was uh, sure. That was a really good experience. I I I had because I've admired your writing for a while now. Uh, you're guest number four. So once I get to 104, I'm gonna call you back. Okay, sounds okay, great. Yeah, thank you so much. Yep. Bye. All right, thank you.